Welcome to Get Your Spirit in Shape, United Methodist Communications and UMC.org's podcast to help us keep our souls as healthy as our bodies. I'm Joe Iovino. You know, when we think about our spiritual lives, the first things that come to our mind are what church people call acts of piety. Things like how often we pray or read the Bible. But there are other things that we can do as well that help us in our spiritual journeys. My guest today is the Reverend Susan Henry Crow. She leads the United Methodist Church's Board of Church and Society. That's our general agency that works on justice issues. They raise awareness of United Methodists about places where people are being harmed, and they coordinate our efforts to make the world a better place for everyone. In this conversation, Susan talks with me about issues of poverty, of health, of peace, and migration. And along the way, she shares some of the things that you and I can do to get involved in working for justice in our communities and across the globe. Susan Henry Crow, welcome to Get Your Spirit in Shape. It's great to be here. You work with the General Board of Church and Society, and one of the things that people know is that our spiritual journeys often depend on going to worship, or we do Bible study, we do those kinds of things. But how do justice issues, how do the things that church and society deal with help us in our spiritual walks? The journey of Methodists in justice really began with Jesus and then with John Wesley. And one of the quotes of John Wesley that I really like is when he said that there is no holiness without social holiness which is a principle and a value that undergirds the work of church and society. And Wesley was very concerned about several issues. And one of those issues was prison reform. Another was he was very opposed to slavery. And he wanted children to not have to labor and to be educated. So all of those really undergird sort of the work that we do, and it's taken on sort of a 21st century face, but it's um, really comes both out of the gospel and out of Wesley's commitment to holiness that is social holiness. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about the work that Church and Society does mm-hmm. today. We uh, use the social principles as written by the General Conference as sort of the guiding work of what we do. And there happen to be 76 statements in the social principles. (laughs) Some of them are interrelated with each other, and so they interface with each other. But some of the issues that we work on that you can certainly find in the book of discipline in the social principles are poverty or gender-based violence or prison reform or care for women and children, health care. And right now our priorities are poverty, peace, health, and immigration. So a lot of our energy is spent on really advocating on those issues, responding to communities like in Tennessee, for example, or North Carolina or Oregon on those issues and helping sort of the grassroots efforts empower people at the local level to really engage on those issues. And they have a national and sometimes international component as well. How does your own involvement in these things keep you in touch with the spirits movement in your life? I came from a church and from a family that really engaged in the public square and in the larger community from a very early age. I had an aunt who was a deaconess in 1905, 
and she served in a church, I mean, not a church, a school in Porto Alegre, Brazil, as a 25-year-old. <laughs> and then she went from Brazil on to Brownsville, Texas, and worked really for the rest of her life as a deaconess. And so the dinner conversations in my house were about my Aunt Della and what she was doing and about what was happening in our local community. So it's really very much in my DNA and how that both personal life, church life, and societal life can't be isolated from each other. And we like to do that, don't we? We like to kind of compartmentalize things. But your your work helps integrate that for people. We do that, and so many people really like this work. We have internships and fellowships and many groups that come to Washington to work, and young people are very enthusiastic about um, injustice and oppression and working for justice and freedom. And so we have a great deal of energy around the the ministry and the work that we do. Yeah, I understand it's a place where people, some people find their initial connection to the church because they see the church cares about this, something that they care about too. Many people say to us, even people who grew up in the church will often say, we didn't even know that there were social principles. And we say, yes, there are social principles and they really are drawn to the church because of those and really are very committed to being advocates with the church. And many people are drawn to the church, as you say, because of this outreach and the the justice work that happens with church and society. Yeah. So let me back up a little bit. You were talking about your aunt, uh-huh. right? And it was kind of turn of the century, early 1900s? Uh, uh, or a little later, from 1900 to 1950. Okay. What, what were the, some of the issues then that maybe she was dealing mm-hmm. with? She was dealing with education in Brazil and a school. And then in Brownsville, Texas, she was dealing with immigration. And it's been an issue that the United Methodist Church has dealt with since the beginning of the United States Mm. and the colonies and the formation of the country. And we have not been of one mind on it. And we have had ministries along the border or borders. uh, And there are many borders in the world in which the United Methodist Church has a presence and engages. But her work was in Brownsville, Texas, with the families that came there. Wow. That's not, I mean, it just sounds like exciting and, and something that we think of as right now, she was dealing with 60 years ago. She was. She wrote a book uh, that I have been reading and some of the stories and some of them are just delightful and funny. She was a very good writer and had a great sense of humor. And as she talks about with great sort of sympathy and compassion and humor, the lives of the people that with whom she engaged. Oh, wow. That's that sounds like it would be a lot of fun. Yeah. You mentioned these four initiatives. Do you mind if we just kind of yeah, spend the, a few minutes on the each priority? One? Sure. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the the ministries with poverty. One of the things that we're working on is poverty and ministry with those living in poverty, and learning more about what annual conferences and churches and communities are doing in this area. Hmm. We've had over a hundred conversations in communities to learn about the ways in which they are engaging. And many are engaging in mercy ministries, sort of humanitarian ministries of helping people. So like the food bank or those exactly. kinds of things? Okay. Exactly. And some are beginning to move into more systemic change, which is what we also want to have happen. Both of those things need to happen. But 
recognizing what are the systems that cause poverty and how do we help alleviate poverty by addressing systemic poverty and the stigmatizing of people who are living in poverty. There is a lot Uh, There are many people um, and communities that stigmatize people who live on the street or who are episodically poor or who are long-term chronically poor. Mm -hmm. And so we are trying to help the church articulate how we engage with people across economic stratas and with a kind of equality and appreciation and respect and recognizing that all people can be in ministry and that it's not just a kind of a one-way street. Sure. What are some of the ways that a, a congregation or an individual can get involved in, in ministries that yeah. assist in poverty? There are a lot of ways. Uh, coming together with many other churches of different denominations or even interfaith ministries to really begin to address the issues in the community is one way. I think discovering what the issues are. Many churches don't know when there is poverty that surrounds them. And so really getting out and just seeing what really is there. There are a lot of young people who move from city to city who are homeless, and sometimes they're invisible and not very visible. And so you have to sort of look around to see what God is showing you. And that's one of the things that we try to encourage, too. And there's a great willingness, I think, for people to reach out and to learn more and to be in new relationships and to figure out ways that people can walk together in life. Yeah, I like the way you, you talked about this big issue, but brought it very local, like to know what's happening in my community, what's happening in, mm-hmm. in my town. Yeah. How would I find out those kinds of things? Number one, we'll have a report before too long uh, (laughs) about what we're discovering. And we're doing this in a very systematic way, but it's all in conversations. So we're not asking people to fill out reports. Hmm. We are calling them and talking with them. And so places like Georgia or Virginia or Missouri or Texas, we are beginning to get a good idea of what some churches and annual conferences are engaging in. So we will have a report, and that should be very helpful. And eventually it'll be broken out in different kinds of issues, I suspect. Yeah, and a lot of times we like keeping that kind of at a distance as if it happens someplace else. But aren't the statistics that a large percentage of Americans are like one paycheck away from yes, yes, being in a bad place. Uh-huh. It, yeah. So it's not Been so a, far it's away. It's not so far away at all. Yeah. Wow. And most churches, you know, we have about 30,000 church buildings and communities mm-hmm. in the U.S. And as the country developed and there was this westward movement, United, our Methodism at the time, was in a lot of different places. And so... We do have a good way of beginning to see sort of where the poverty is and ways that churches might begin to think about it. Yeah, and there's something about churches are so local that they can actually be the discoverer. That's a weird, yeah. weird word, but yeah. be the ones that are on the ground. Exactly. Knowing who's who's in the community. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. And they also know how to access resources. Mm. So... One local church or congregation may not know how to address an issue that they find, but they know how to go to the town and how to bring groups together 
sure. to begin to address the issues. So it's really important to have a grassroots movement to address some of these issues. The other thing that I also think I want to add, which begins to lap over into another area, is immigration. Mm-hmm. And many people who are immigrants, really some do live in the shadows, and the poverty is very hard to see and to find, but can be extreme. And so there is fear, and I think there's fear everywhere about being poor and, and stigmatized. Um, and churches seem like a natural place to really help demythologize poverty and make people's lives vivid and real and for churches to have a compassionate attitude. That's not paternalistic or condescending, but really seeing people as fellow travelers in the world. Yeah. I remember in my very first church that I served, one of the saints there taught me this phrase that I know is really common, but I had never heard it before, but it was there but for the grace of God go I, Mm -hmm. that that we really are very connected Mm -hmm. um, to those who we want to say are different than us. Mm-hmm. You, you started to talk about immigration a little bit. If, okay, if we move into that sure. focus. Yeah. Tell me about the ministries helping with issues surrounding immigration. The church is becoming increasingly committed to the issue of immigration, and there are a couple of task forces, both in the Council of Bishops and across the connection on immigration and migration. Migration is a big issue in the world. There are about 65 million uh, migrants in the world. And we don't know what the population, the immigrant population is, depending on how we define it. I mean, my family is of Irish descent, Mm -hmm. and most people that live in the U.S., except Native Americans who were here first, really are an immigrant population. So it may be 100 years ago, it may be 50 years ago, it may be five years ago, but ours is a life of migration, and throughout the biblical stories, migration was an important fact, and so people migrated throughout human history, and so crossing borders and going into new lands is nothing new, but how, as Christians, we're taught through the scripture about how to care for the sojourner and care for those who cross borders is in our DNA as Christians and as United Methodists. So our work is both on advocacy. We have advocated on behalf of dreamers who are young people who were born here or came here at a very young age because of decisions that others made. And it is not really fair for them to go back to some place they don't know uh, without family, without connections. And so we have been an advocate for um, dreamers. We also do advocate for changing policies that discriminate and keep people out. And we, of course, favor legal immigration. There are a variety of circumstances that have to be considered. Most people migrate because of climate, because of violence, and because of war. So there is a lot of work that has to be done to, de, again, demythologize who migrants are and why they come and go. Can you tell me a little bit more about why people would migrate because of climate? Mm-hmm. A great example of climate 
the influence of climate is in the case of the Philippines, for example. The Philippines is one of the countries that is most affected by climate change with storms and floods and typhoons. Mm-hmm. And often they're displaced, and so they have no home, and they migrate to another home. So that's one of the examples. Another example in the U.S. W- was in the case of Katrina. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the t- in 2005, many people were displaced, and their homes were lost, their communities were lost, and they had no place. So many people went to Houston or to Atlanta or to New York or to Chicago, and there was no home to go back to. And so we feel it domestically, and we also know it in many places around the world. Another example is in the case of South Sudan. People are deeply and profoundly affected by war, and they are fleeing war and violence, and in Central America as well. And so there is not a place for them to be. Another reason that people migrate sometimes is domestic violence and violence in the home. And, of course, as people of Christian faith and, you know, are Jesus followers, we really want people to live in safe and healthy environments. And so children need a safe home. They need a home that is peace-filled and not full of violence. So there are a variety of reasons that people flee uh, to find a better home. And and our call is to help them find that exactly. safe place where they can have security and flourish. And flourish. Yeah. Poverty, immigration, health? Health. Talk to me a little bit about advocacy for health. Advocacy for health in the past couple of years has really been in the United States situation of preserving Medicaid for about 40 million people who without Medicaid would have no health care. And this would involve the elderly, it would involve children, people with mental health issues, and people with disabilities. So preserving Medicaid for people who are vulnerable is one of the things that the United Methodist Church has worked for as well as with our other faith partners. And we have other initiatives globally as well. Are there other places that we're working for global health? Different agencies and different conferences and communities are working on health. In some places, it's systemic, and we look at it sort of in a comprehensive way. In other places, it's more local, and we look at what are the healthy habits of a workplace, how do we provide space for people to eat healthy meals as opposed to running out to the local you know, fast food place. And so how does the work environment, how does the church environment, how do the way, the places that people spend their days, how healthy are they? And so we look at it from a very kind of micro perspective, as well as what happens in a city. Uh, If you live in Flint, Michigan, uh, and there's a water crisis, then water becomes a health issue. And if you look at water globally, there are a lot of places where impure water is a health issue. So something like in the case of water, you have both health issues, you may have poverty, you may have other kinds of issues. So many of these issues overlap. And at different levels of the church in different communities worldwide, Communities are addressing the health issues in a variety of ways. 
I think the fourth one you said was peace. That's what I wrote down. Peace. Is that correct? Okay. Did I get that right? <laughs> we don't have raw peace yet. <laughs> no. no. So what <laughs> but are we're, some... hopefully we're on the way. Absolutely. What are some of the initiatives there? The most recent thing that we did was two weeks ago, and we helped with other agencies and colleagues to bring a group together to talk about peace on the Korean Peninsula and the reunification of families in North and South Korea. And it was a very moving experience. I'm sure. To have people come together, and this gathering happened to be in Washington, which was not the first one, but to really talk about how that in my lifetime there has never been a peace-filled world. It's We've had an endless war in my mm-hmm. entire lifetime. And whether... And it was partly in Korea, and it's been in other places. But it is now time for the Korean Peninsula to begin to figure out how to live more peacefully. And, of course, any time that you're working on negotiations and agreements that hopefully would lead to a peace treaty, there are many factors that go into that. And how do people, peoples live together after conflict and war? An example of that, the board, our board meeting was in Germany last March, and one of the things that we were looking at was how do people come together after the Cold War and after World War II. So coming back together is not an easy thing. Mm. And there are different economies, there are different cultures, there are different um, peoples, there are different communities. And so how do you begin to bring communities together that have not been able to be together for a long time? And often the government has prevented the coming together, but it's habituated and so that people don't really know how to be together again. So there is peace and then there is the coming back and what happens after conflict and war. I keep coming back to these are like super big issues yeah. to deal with. What can I do as a member of a mm-hmm. congregation or what are some things that the individual can do to get involved in any or all of these? Sure. Our work can be found on our website, which is www.umcjustice.org. And you can see what some opportunities are. Occasionally, we will have sign-on letters, or we will invite people to sign on for a letter, perhaps to the president or to their state representatives or their state um, senators, I mean, their federal, their congressional leaders, Mm -hmm. to address an issue. And leadership in the country and in the state really is affected when a lot of people sign on or write letters. I mean, you know, if you have several hundred people writing a letter to your senator or several hundred people writing to your house member, they will listen. And United Methodists have a great deal of influence, and pulling it together can be really important, and it can also be energizing for the community. So our website is one way. Finding churches in your community that really address some of these issues is another way because in those communities, 
you do begin to have a sense of belonging and a sense of common cause with other people. So, and most United Methodists have uh, United Methodist women's groups, church and society groups, young people who really are interested in uh, justice issues. And so it's one of the attractions that I think the United Methodist Church offers is a sense of community and belonging to act for justice in the world. So those are a couple of examples. I think the third example that I would offer is to seek out either on our website or in with some churches and and annual conferences, which is sort of the state level uh, organization of the church. What organizing efforts might be happening? Uh, we do have rapid response teams on health. We have rapid response teams on immigration, and so coming together with others across the U.S particularly right now, who are addressing some of these issues really not only helps the cause, but it puts you in contact with other folks. And you have some great resources on the site, too. I just wanted to make sure people are aware of, because if if there's a topic that you're interested in, umcjustice.org is a great place to go mm-hmm. and find some resource that you can gather others others around and share in some knowledge and then how our faith why it matters Mm -hmm. to people of faith. So I think you guys have some, I've been on there frequently, so I'll I'll give you the, thanks so much. (laughs) Give me a little bit of a a boost there. One of the things that draws me a lot to a Wesleyan theology is the fact that these things matter. What we do with our lives is part of our expression of faith. And so we have this general rule of discipleship that some may know about that talks about living our lives through justice and compassion and worship and devotion, and that we should be in all four of those areas, be active in all four of those. This is part of who we are, and it really does feed us spiritually. So one of the questions I ask every guest on Get Your Spirit in Shape is what is a practice that you use? What's something that you do to help keep you spiritually fit, to kind of keep your connection with God alive? There's several things that are important to me. Because I now work in Washington, I see certain people often, uh, (laughs) you know, at the coffee shop or, you know, at the bus stop. But one of the things that I really enjoy is getting out with different congregations, different annual conferences, and meeting people and seeing really what life is like for them. So that's one of the things that gives me kind of a great, gives me a great sense of pleasure and joy, but it also helps me be grounded. And it helps me stay in touch with my own story and the stories of others, which really impact the work. So I think that's one of the really important things. Another thing that I really like, and I think this is just because of who I am, but I really like encounters with conversations with street vendors, with people who live on the street, with the police, with salespeople in stores. And so I have nice conversations with the police around Capitol Hill or people I pass going, you know, to CVS who live on the street, and I've seen them three or four times. And so being a little forward, I guess, but engaging in conversations with people that do kind of everyday work. And everyday 
work and labor is so much a part of uh, sort of Wesleyan DNA. I wish that I had um, started a long time ago writing the stories of taxi drivers. Uh, (laughs) They are wonderful and mostly immigrants, but not entirely. Mm -hmm. But people who drive taxis have kind of incredible stories. And I haven't written most of those stories down, but some of them are quite moving. I remember not too long ago, I had one conversation with a young father who had served in the United States military. He was from Afghanistan, and he's now in the U.S., but his family is still in Afghanistan. And his little girl had her sixth birthday, and she was really angry with him because he was in the U.S. and she was in Afghanistan. Oh. And he had not seen her since she was two. And so he was he was really heartbroken that day, particularly because she was really angry with him that he couldn't be at her birthday party. Yeah. And, he, you know, he said, Skyping is just not the same. And I said, of course <laughs> no. it's not the same. Uh, so there are so many people that have served the country in our military and um, are separated from their families. There are people who live in many different, have come from many different parts of the world for a variety of reasons um, that have found a place here and are very proud to be in the U.S. Um, and to be American citizens or on the way to citizenship, and yet they're separated from their families. So, you know, I wish I had sort of kept track of more of the stories. Well, I have to tell you, I have so we could do this for a long time. I could ask you a ton of questions, but we're running out of time. And I just want to tell you how much I appreciate having this conversation with you and learning more about your work and how it can impact my life and the lives of of every one of us. Thank you so much for inviting me. And it's such a joy to get to talk about these stories and about the work we do and how that people's lives have a whole ripple effect and how those comprehensive issues also have a ripple effect. So thank Thank you for the invitation. That was the Reverend Susan Henry Crow, the leader of United Methodist Church and Society. To learn more about her work, go to umc.org slash podcasts and look for this episode. We have several links on the page to help you learn more about the issues that you're passionate about. And if you browse around the page, you will also see some other podcasts that you might enjoy, like the Compass podcast by my colleagues at Rethink Church here at United Methodist Communications. As always, please feel free to email me your thoughts at J-I-O-V-I-N-O at U-M-C-O-M dot org. I'd be happy to hear from you. And if you have a moment, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to get your spirit in shape. Good reviews really do help people find us. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with another conversation that will help us keep our souls as healthy as our bodies. I'm Joe Iovino. Peace.